Amen. Well, it's been good to worship the Lord this morning thus far, and um, I'm excited to dig into the text of Scripture uh, with you now. And so I want to invite you to take your Bible and make your way to the book of Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter number 1, we're going to find our text in verse 20 down through verse number 23 this morning. We're uh, preaching expositionally through the book of Ephesians, coming through it verse by verse, line upon line. And uh, we uh, looked last week at uh, the prayer that Paul offers up uh, on behalf of the Ephesians. And what we see in our text today is really connected to that prayer. It's the latter part of that prayer that is filled with uh, great encouragement in, uh, and as well as doctrine in Christ and His resurrection and exaltation. And so the title of the message this morning is Power in the Exalted Christ. Power in the Exalted Christ. And so let's read our text together and then we'll look at it as we come through it. You'll notice in verse number 20 that Scripture says, Paul's picking up in this prayer and he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Often in this world, we can feel powerless. Ever felt that way? Felt powerless about something? We may feel powerless because of uh, personal struggles with sin or trials of suffering. We may feel powerless by the overwhelming influx of uh, bad news or tragedies in the world or things that are happening. Even in some Christian circles, the, uh, the mindset is always negative, always filled with pessimism. And with all of this, it is easy, if we're not careful, to feel discouraged, to maybe even feel defeated in some fashion uh, when things don't seem to be going like we think they ought to be going. And essentially, sometimes those sorts of things can make us feel as if we're powerless, as if we have no strength, as if we can do nothing, as if there will not be a good outcome. You know, I was in a church basketball league one year when our team had gone undefeated and made it to the championship game. And during that championship game, I went up for a rebound and I came down on somebody's foot and turned my ankle hard. And uh, me being super competitive, this happened near the beginning of the game, I had no choice but to just sit out, to sit on the sidelines and to watch the game happen. And uh, every time the ball went in for the other team, I just felt, oh no, here we go. And then our team would score and being in that position, you feel powerless, like you want to help, but you can't do it, or maybe you uh, feel like you might want to try get in the game, but you can't do that. Well, I sat there powerless and watched, and our team ended up pulling out the win, and it, I realized it didn't all depend on me. And uh, there's a point there in our Christian life is that often we look at our uh, world around us, and things seem negative, and we may feel powerless, but we have to understand that it doesn't all depend on me. It doesn't all depend on us. The truth is, we're not powerless. In fact, as Christians, we are the most powerful people in this world. You say, well, how does that make sense? Well, understand this. To the world around us, power is measured by physical strength, by financial wealth, by intellectual genius, by authoritative positions, and even maybe having the majority uh, around them. But is this truly what power is, considering the temporal nature of humanity and this world? It's not. True power is not found in earthly sources, but a heavenly source. True power is not physical in nature, it is spiritual in nature. And this is the truth that Paul is communicating to the Ephesians in connection with this prayer that he's expressing for them. Now, we recall in verse 16 through 19, as we looked at last week, a prayer that Paul has been offering on behalf of the Ephesians. Paul prayed for them to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit, that they would know the knowledge of God and of His promises and plan and working for them. He wanted them to know the hope, the inheritance that they were called to. 
But he also wanted them to know in verse 19, and I want you to note this and read this with me. In verse 19, he wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Now, as we come through this text, verse 20 through 23, it all hinges and flows from verse 19. Because what we look at in this text is Paul giving an example, an illustration, a truth of the power that is worked towards you who believe. And this brings great confidence to you, Christian. It brings great encouragement to us to know the power that is worked toward us in Christ Jesus. This text, I believe, is one that ought to lift you up. It is one bound with encouragement, bound with hope, bound with optimism, bound with confidence in who we are and what we are called to do in Christ. Now, I want you to also note here that Paul is not praying for the believers to be given power, but that they have illumination of the power that is already expressed towards them. That they know and understand the power that is expressed towards them through the work of Christ, and that it is immeasurable. So notice with me in our notes here this morning, first I want to point out to you, number one, the expression of this power in Christ. What does Paul use? What does he, what does he bring to the forefront to make known to them the power, the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. And the first thing He brings out is fundamental to the gospel, to our faith. It is Christ's resurrection from the dead. Christ's resurrection from the dead is the first powerful working He wants to point out to them. And so we read in verse 19 and 20, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. This is the first point that He's bringing to their attention of the power toward us who believe. It is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now think a moment about the power that the resurrection of Christ manifests to us. What greater impossibility is there for mankind than to overcome death. There isn't, right? What greater impossibility is there for us than for us to overcome death? What kind of power would be required to rise from death? Power beyond any that this world could offer. A greater power than that of men or angels. Only the almighty power of God. Only the author of life can raise people from the dead. Only God Himself can raise from the dead. And so thus we see that Christ, His resurrection, is the starting point of Paul bringing to their attention the resurrection power of Jesus. Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, he said in that sermon, God raised Him up. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. The prospect of Jesus remaining in the tomb was not a possibility. It wasn't a possibility. This resurrection of Christ made it unmistakable that Christ is indeed the Son of God, the Christ promised of God. Paul, writing to the Romans, says of Christ in Romans 1.4 that He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So by the resurrection of the dead, He has declared this in power. So how significant is Christ's resurrection to the Christian's life in this world? Well, we already know that without the resurrection of Christ, we don't have hope. What good is a dead Savior? If a Savior's dead, He's not a Savior at all. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ be not risen, what does he say through that chapter? Our preaching's vain, our faith is vain, we're still yet in our sins. 
So there's a lot of theological foundation as to why the resurrection is important. But what, what, what do we find here and how it works towards us to, who believe? Here's three quick things I want to point out about the resurrection of Christ's power towards us. And here's what I briefly noted in our last sermon, just introducing this. By the same power that raised Christ from the dead, we who believe has been raised, have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. You understand that this is what happens at the moment of conversion. Conversion is a spiritual resurrection. It is a spiritual resurrection. We note that before knowing Christ, every person, as, G- as Paul's going to point out in the next chapter, is dead in trespasses and sins. They are dead in trespasses and sins. Now let me ask you something. What can a spiritual dead man do to save himself? How can a spiritually dead individual give himself spiritual life? The answer is, he cannot. It is something that must be granted. It is something that is uh, orchestrated by the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. So you'll note in verse two, in ver- chapter 2 and verse 5 of Ephesians, notice how this connects here. Paul connects some of the things he said. We'll look at it when we come through this text again. But chapter 2 and verse 5, and note this. It states, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, what did He do? Made us alive together with Christ. He quickened us. He gave us spiritual life when we were dead. So you understand that conversion, it is not a light thing as many people make it out today. The moment of salvation in the sinner's heart is not just some simple decision made on logical deduction or emotional stirring. Understand that conversion is a resurrection from spiritual death. It is something that is worked in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural work. It is the dead brought to life eternally. So you understand that the miracle of conversion is only possible... Because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But there's also a second application here in how the resurrection power of Christ is worked towards us. Number two, by the same power that raised Christ from the dead, we who believe also have power to overcome sin, Satan, and the world. To live victoriously in our Christian life. Now, our old nature was crucified on the cross, and we have been raised to newness of life in Christ. And by this power, we now live unto God rather than unto sin. While in our past, what did we do before? We did nothing but yield to sin. We were in a constant state of yielding to sin. But because of the resurrection and His work in us, we now have a new Master, a risen Master, who has set us free from the power of sin in this life we live. Now, to point this out, I want to turn to Romans chapter number 6. Romans chapter number 6, I want to read a passage here in verse 5 down through verse 14 as Paul kind of connects these things together. You'll notice in Romans 6 and verse 5 through verse 14, He says to these Christians, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin... Therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members as and your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. As you come through that passage, what do you find very plainly? The believer is dead to sin and alive to God. And because of this principle, because of this, we are called upon there in verse number 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Now, this does not mean that we will never sin or that we will never battle with sin. But it does mean that by Christ's resurrection power, we do have power to live victoriously over sin. We do. John the Apostle wrote to the Christians concerning the world and those who were against Christ. In 1 John 4, 4, he said to them, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. How many of us need to be reminded of that pretty often? We're, we're constantly inundated with the world, with temptations of our flesh, But we come back to the Scripture of who we are in Christ, and this is what Paul wants them to know. The power of Christ's resurrection and what it affects towards them. You and I, greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Who is it that is in us? It is the risen Lord Himself in the Spirit of Christ. The power for the Christian in his life and mission, understand, is the power of the resurrection, giving us victory. Thirdly, by the same power that raised Christ from the dead, we who believe will be physically raised from the dead unto glorified bodies on the last day. So so you see how the resurrection of Christ, it, it affects your conversion, your Christian life, and you're on into eternity. And so it is through the resurrection of Christ that we will come into, uh, the resurrection of the saints, that we will come into that eternal inheritance that Paul has been mentioning. You see, this resurrection on the last day, it's already a settled event. It's not something that is out in the future and there's a possibility that it might not happen for us. No. That's why we have this hope, because this hope is not something that's, oh, it's a possibility. This hope is it's an essential confidence and an expectation we have in Him. Now, Paul says of that glorious resurrection in the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, closing that great chapter, he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this flows in context of the resurrection of the believer. That you and I are raised again at that final day. And so we think about how marvelous this resurrection power is. And what's the point of this resurrection power? Paul is saying this. This resurrection power is toward us who believe. That's the flow of all the power we're looking at. Towards us who believe. This is what Paul's showing them. But notice not only the resurrection power. That's the first expression he shows, but in that letter B this morning, we see Christ's resurrection from the dead, but we see also Christ's exaltation to His throne is another demonstration of the power that is expressed towards you and I who believe. Now, we notice this expression of the immeasurable power towards us. It is also found in the ascent and exaltation of Christ. Now Paul says in verse 20, on the last part of that verse, notice what he says next. He says on the last part of that verse, that he worked in Christ when he raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Now when we think about the gospel and the work of God, how often do we think of the ascension? How often do we think of the ascension of Christ after the resurrection? When we think of the gospel, we often just think of the 
crucifixion and the resurrection, right? And those are the, those are the core principles of the gospel. But you understand that the ascension and exaltation of Christ are essential also. They also are essential. What happened with the ascension of Christ? Well, we read of how this physically happens in Acts 1-9 when he's talking to his disciples and he's about to ascend to heaven. When he had said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight, out of his sight. So you imagine these disciples, they're sitting there gazing and see Jesus go, out of the, uh, go through the clouds and he just out of their sight, no longer can see him anymore. Is that how the story ends? Is that the end of what it is? If you read that text, the angels are there and they tell the disciples, why are you just standing here gazing? Why are you just standing here gazing? He told you to go somewhere and to wait for power from on high. And the reason that they would receive power from on high is because Christ had ascended to His throne. So understand this. That Christ, when He ascended into heaven, He didn't just disappear for us to not know what's going on anymore. What did He do? The Bible tells us in Mark's Gospel that He sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down at the right hand of God. This place that Jesus ascends to is essential to the Gospel and the continued work of the Gospel today. Now, why is Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father so important? We find some clear truth regarding this in the Old Testament. And I want to bring you to Psalms chapter 110. Psalms chapter 110 and verse 1 through 3. I want you to see this prophecy. Psalms chapter number 110 and verse 1 through 3. Notice with me that David penning this and writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And you could read the rest of the chapter and see the continuation of this, but I want to focus in on verse 1 through 3 and why the ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand is essential. Well, firstly, this act of His sitting at the right hand fulfills prophecy. Fulfills prophecy. This is a prophecy. Just as the crucifixion was a prophecy just as His burial was a prophecy, just as His resurrection was a prophecy, so also His ascension to the right hand of the Father is indeed a prophecy. So it fulfills it. But notice also, secondly, that this sitting at the right hand of the Father, it magnifies Christ's unique and holy status as Lord and King. See, it is with this passage, this text, that Jesus challenged the Pharisees with who he was. He challenges them, <clears throat> excuse me, in Matthew 22:45 where Jesus quotes this verse. Then again goes on to say, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? That put the Pharisees in a predicament because they don't see and understand that the Messiah is both the descendant of David while at the same time he is divinely Lord. And so Jesus puts them in a a chokehold here, I guess you could say, because they couldn't say nothing to him. You read that text? They couldn't give him an answer. They didn't know what to say. They had no answer. They failed to see that the Messiah from David's line would be the divine Lord who sits at the right hand of the Father. And thus you see in Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord. There's two Lords here. What do you find there? God the Father speaking to God the Son. Sit at my right hand. Hand. And so understand with him sitting at his right hand, this is the highest honor that could be given, especially considering the human nature of Jesus. Now we know that Jesus eternally is what? Divine. But he came and took on a human nature. And in his human nature, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. John Gill, speaking of this sitting at the right hand of the Father, says, which is exp- that is expressive of the great honor 
conferred upon the human nature of Christ, such as never was given to any of the angels and of the glory it is exalted to. And we find reference after reference to this very truth. Hebrews 1.13, we've been studying that in Sunday school. We've come through this, but I'll re- reiterate it to you. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Never has an angel been given this. Never has any other man been given this. But the God-man has. Jesus Christ, Jesus, the risen Lord and exalted one. You see, this wording of, of sit at my right hand, it is, it is essentially a metaphor that many would use in that ancient day. And it would be used to confer the honor of sitting along with the king or the one who has the highest authority. So kings would place at their right hand those whom they designed to honor and who associate themselves with dominion. Because God Almighty already always has all authority and rule. There's never been a time when He lacked that, right? So we see that this has been conferred to the Son, the God-man. The Almighty Sovereign Father places His begotten Son at His right hand, granting Him the honor of ruling and reigning as the God-man. There is no honor as high as that which is given to Jesus Christ. John Flavel comments and says, Oh, what a change this is this. Here He sweated, but there He sits. Here He groaned, but there He triumphs. Here He lay upon the ground, but there He sits in the throne of glory. There's a third aspect here that this text reveals that is so important for us to understand. Not only do we see that it shows us the significance of who Christ is, that He is Lord and King, and that it is a fulfilled prophecy, but also this text reveals His enthronement with power. His enthronement with power. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 110. And what does it say? The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This clearly indicates Christ with His power reigns among His enemies. Among His enemies. Not after they're all wiped away and there are no more enemies. But it says rule in the midst of your enemies enemies. And so through the rest of this chapter, we see the significance of that very thing in the exaltation of Jesus. So we have to understand that Christ, He is not waiting to reign and exercise authority. He already does that. This has already come to pass and is in active continuation because of His enthronement from the day He sat down at the right hand of the Father. In fact, what you're going to find is that this prophecy of Psalm 110 and verse 1, it is the most quoted Old Testament verse in your New Testament. It is mentioned more than any other verse in the Old Testament. Why is that? Because this verse is foundational to the present course of the church, the kingdom of God in this world. And so Paul presently points the Ephesian believers to the exaltation of Christ as a demonstration of His power towards them who believe. Towards us who believe. Well, how is this connected to us who believe? He connects it in the next chapter. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Look at Ephesians 2 and verse 6. We'll come through this when we come through the text, but just in brief reference. Notice that to the Christian, we, He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see this connection happening here? You and I also, positionally, we have been risen and ascended with Him and seat, are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Can you fathom such a position as this? And yet we have it. And this is the glorious point Paul wants them to understand, that the power of the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ is the same power towards us who believe. Charles Hodge comments and summarizes this well. He says, As often, therefore, as the believer contemplates Christ as risen and seated at the right hand of God, 
he has at once an illustration of the change which has affected it, which has been affected in his own spiritual state and a pledge that the work commenced in regeneration shall be consummated in glory. What a marvel this is. Christian, that ought to encourage you. That ought, that, that ought to remove your feeling of powerlessness. That you're on the minority or the losing side. You're not. You're not. Come with me further and we see number two in our notes, the extent of this power of Christ. The extent of this power of Christ. I'm going to point out two things about this. <clears throat> Christ has, firstly, Christ has supreme power over all authorities. Over all authorities. Now, Paul is expounding further this exaltation. This is really what flows through the rest of this. In verse 21, we see Christ is exalted far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Now, I have to note that he's far above all them. Far above. Not just a little bit. He might be just a little bit above others, but he is exceedingly above all authorities and all powers and all names that could be named. Now, what is Paul describing to these Ephesian Christians here and to every Christian? That there is no form of authority or title in all of creation that is even close to the position and authority of Christ. Nothing comes close. And biblically speaking here, those who have rule and authority and power dominion, that language is most often referred to as the angelic and spiritual forces at work. All these names, there can be no doubt, are applied to angels who are often used as God's means of exercising rule and orchestrating His purposes. And this most certainly shows a greater example of Christ's authority since the powers of spiritual forces at work certainly are greater than the forces of men. He says in reference to this, Hebrews 1 and verse 3 through 4, you'll find reference to this with his exaltation. Of Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Peter also comments on this and says in 1 Peter 3.22 of Christ saying, Who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So when we think of these powers and authorities, chiefly it refers to that of the angelic beings. But that is not to say that Christ's authority is, not, is, is only over the angels. It also includes all authorities of mankind too. Notice that Paul also says, Christ is above every name that is named. What did Paul write in Philippians 2? God has highly exalted him and given him what? A name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the authority of Christ at the Father's right hand is unmistakably above all beings, no matter their position, whether they're angels or whether they're men, He is above them all. All creation is under the authority of Christ. John the Baptist testified before Christ's ascension, knowing who He was, saying in John 3.31, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus said before He ascended, when He gives the commission to His church to make disciples of every nation, He says in Matthew 28.18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You understand that Christ does not just have authority in heaven while leaving the earth to itself. He has authority over every single ounce of it. 
every single bit. Let us not forget that Christ does not just rule in heaven. He rules on earth in the midst of His enemies. Just as Psalm 110 tells us, He is sovereignly governing the affairs of men, bringing His chosen to Himself, putting underfoot that which is against Him. This is what you see happening with the kingdom of God and the work of Christ. And so the authority of Christ, while it is wonderful to consider, how much more wonderful is it to know that all this extensive sovereign power and His reign is being worked towards us who believe. That's the context here. Paul's describing the power that is worked towards us who believe. And as I read this, I almost can't believe that this is towards us as His people. We, 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 we don't fathom the depth of, of what God has done for us and what He's doing through us and for us. We fail to realize this. He grants His glory, but also on behalf of us. And this, friends, is why the Ephesians, Ephesian Christians didn't need to fear or become feeble in the world. Though those Christians were fewer and smaller, they were not puny and powerless. You know why? All the powerful authorities known and displayed in Ephesus were nothing in light of the power and authority of the exalted Christ. Caesar and all his wealth and worship and wonder among the people, he was not the true king. So understand, when they were were preaching, Jesus is king, they were making a political statement. Caesar, you're not king. You're not. Jesus is. All the power of those spiritual forces at work in Ephesus, the false gods, the mysticism, the Gnosticism, all of that, the witchcraft, all those things that we look at even in our own world that seem, seem to be so mighty and so large, they're already defeated foes. They're already defeated. It's just a matter of time until they're exposed and put under His feet. So the Ephesian believers, based on this truth, they could be bold and confident knowing that the gospel of the exalted Christ would break asunder the chains of sin and Satan. And Christian, this is the point for us today. That principle is still true. You and I, we have nothing to fear in this world. We preach Christ, we stand firm on His Word, and He will sovereignly work as He sees fit. And we know that it will not return void, that it will be successful and victorious. Notice with me, letter B, that Christ also, Christ has supreme power not only over all authorities, but... For all eternity. (laughs) For all eternity. Forever. If you look at verse number 21, notice what Paul says. He says that he is exalted, uh, has authority far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. But notice this next statement. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What does Paul mean by this age? This word age is the Greek word aeon. And it refers to a segment of time as a particular unit of history. Now, it's clear that this age refers to the era of history that Paul and the Ephesians lived in that leads up to an age to come. Age to come is most commonly understood as the eternal state, which is the kingdom of God in its fully consummated form. This age and then the age to come. And what separates the two ages? It would be the coming of Christ, the resurrection from the dead. And so what do we find here? Paul's revealing that Christ has all authority over every power forever. All other powers in this world and authorities, what happens with them? They all come to an end eventually, don't they? Thank God for term limits. But even those who don't have term limits, those who have lived under a, a, a communistic dictation Uh, dictator control, those who want to reign their whole life, guess what? That leader's going to die. His reign ends. His reign ends. Every ruler and authority has an end to their reign. But what Paul's pointing out here is that Christ reigns forever. He doesn't have an end to His reign. John Gill commenting on this says this phrase, he's talking about this age and age to come, this phrase denotes both the extensiveness of Christ's kingdom and the eternity of it. 
as reaching both worlds and being over everything in them and as lasting to the end of this and unto that which is to come. You remember what was said by the angel Gabriel concerning Christ at his birth, his, his conception announcement. Gabriel says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32 and 33, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, how long? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. No end. So through this extensive and eternal authority of Christ, we must remember Paul's focus here. What he's saying, this eternal power of Christ is manifested towards us who believe. And we see that in Ephesians 2.7, we see yet another connection to us in Christ. In Ephesians 2.7, notice what he says. He's raised us up in the heavenly places, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, or the age to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The authority of Christ will be experienced by us for all of eternity. Notice with me number three and lastly, you see the effect of this power of Christ. The effect of this power in Christ. And what does this power of Christ do Notice, firstly, that this power makes everything subject to Him. Absolutely everything. And everyone. Continuing in this verse, in this concept, He says in verse 22, verse 22, He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. Now, Paul here is quoting yet another scripture. We see it in Psalm 110.1, but we see it again in Psalm 8.6. You have given Him dominion. Over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. That's speaking about man, but it is fully realized in the man, Jesus Christ. And what does this description reveal of Christ's power? That all things in this world are put under his feet. Everything is under the reign of the seated king. Yet there is an already and not yet principle applied here, just as there is with so many other things in Scripture. All things are presently subjected unto Him because He has all authority. At the same time, He is going to sit at the Father's right hand until His enemies are made His footstool. So there's an already and not yet application. Hebrews 2, 7-8 through reveals this. He says, You made Him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside of control. At present, we do not yet see everything in a subjection to Him. So you see, there is an absolute nature to this and a progressive nature to this at the same time. Everything is already His, and He is at the same time progressively putting all things under His feet. Here's the reality. Christ owns everything, and he is going to claim everything as his own. I love this quote by Abraham Kuyper. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! 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 I hear that a lot in my house. People and David, their toys and stuff. That's mine! No, it's mine! No, it's mine! Christ says of all creation, all of it is mine. It's mine, and I will claim it as my own. Psalm 2 reiterates this very truth where the Father says to the Son with His exaltation, He says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. They belong to Him. So the power and dominion of Christ is brought to fruition through this exaltation. We see it prophesied of in Daniel. Daniel writes in Daniel 7 and verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given 
dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You notice that this text is not about His descension coming back. It is about His ascension to the Father. One like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. And when He goes to the Ancient of Days, is seated at His right hand, there is given Him a kingdom and dominion that all nations should serve Him. And friend, this is why the kingdom of God will not fail, will not be beaten, will march forward victoriously. It is because all things have been made subject to Christ and are being brought under His feet. Paul writes more detail concerning this in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll be brief here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23 through verse 28. This is the great resurrection chapter. But you'll notice that Paul says here, but to each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming those who belong to Christ, speaking of the resurrection, then comes the end. So at the resurrection, then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25, For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's a plain layout here of what Paul's talking about. Christ's resurrection, his ascension. He reigns, putting all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when is death destroyed? At the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, we enter into that age to come when the kingdom is perfect and consummated in all its glory. This power Christ exercises is toward us who believe. Christ is reigning not only on behalf of His glory, but also on behalf of His people. He is everything to us. Lastly, notice the power of Christ. This power fills the church, His body. This power fills the church, His body. In verse 22, the Bible says, He gave Him to be the head over all things to the church. Verse 23, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You'll notice just a couple things here. That Christ's authority includes being the head over all things to the church. Now the head, this is a, an analogy here, just as our head and our body. The head is the most important part of the body, isn't it? He's going to emphasize that later in chapter 5. But what we must see here is that the head of the church is Christ, not anyone else. The pastor is not the head of the church. The pope, is an illegitimate position, is not a head of the church. Deacons are not ahead of the church. Associations are not ahead of the church. There's only one head, and that is Christ. And as the head, you understand that He is everything to the church. The church belongs to Christ, has been purchased by Christ, is sustained by Christ. The church exists for Christ, can do nothing without Christ. That Christ is the head means that He is the source of its life. He is its supreme ruler. He is always present with His church. He sympathizes with His church. He loves His church as His own flesh. Christ is the head of the church. How wonderful it is to know our loving Lord is the sovereign over our church. Paul goes on to say, that the church is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What is meant by this, that He is the fullness of Christ? Well, there's two possible interpretations. One, that, Christ, that the church completes Christ using the analogy of the head and the body. Like the body completes Him with Him being the head. Some interpret it that way. I don't think I would go that direction because of the context and the usage of the word fullness. The second interpretation is that 
And the most likely is that Christ fills the church with his presence and power. And this indeed is true of many other scriptures. He indwells the church as we've seen already in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the fullness of the life of the church, empowering her, completing her. Paul said to the Colossian church in Colossians 2.10, And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. The point Paul is making here is that just as Christ's exalted authority fills all creation, so also it fills the entirety of the church, completing her. He fills the church as He alone is the one who fills all in all. Friends, all of this glorious power that we have seen in Christ's resurrection, exaltation, and His dominion, Paul brings out this glorious doctrine as the example of the power that is expressed towards you who believe. Verse 19 is what this all flows from in the prayer. It is expressed towards us who believe. And because of this, Christian, we have nothing to fear. It means we're victorious. We don't have to cower to any power or authority that opposes Christ. The church marches forward triumphantly. And it is Paul's prayer that they are enlightened by the Spirit of God to know the depths of this gospel blessedness that they are partakers of. So today, let us who believe on Christ know the power of the exalted Lord. That it is by His resurrection and exaltation that we are who we are and that we do what we do. And if you today have yet to believe on Christ, today I pray that it may be the day you would turn to Him. That you would see your exceeding sinfulness and that Christ alone is the Savior of sinners. His atonement alone is the only means by which any sinner will ever be saved. Turn to Him. Trust in Him alone as Lord and Savior. Because to be on the other side is to be on the wrong side. We must be on the Lord's side by faith today. Let us stand and prepare for a closing song as we pray. Father in heaven, we bow before You this morning and thank You for this text of Scripture that You have given to us. We're so thankful, Father, to see how it connects to the prayer Paul is offering to you on behalf of the Ephesians. What marvelous power is manifested in the resurrection of Christ, in the exaltation of Christ, in the authority and reign and rule of Him as He is seated at your right hand. May we as your church understand that He is the head, He is the ruler and King over us. May we individually submit our hearts to Him and obey Him. May we as a church be always sensitive to follow Christ and be in subject unto Him in everything. And if there's any here today that has yet to believe, yet to be born again, it is my prayer, Father, that You would make them willing and able to believe here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.